0: All right. Well, good morning. We're continuing uh, looking at scholastic theologians today since we didn't wrap that up last week. The last what? Last week. I know you slept since then. I know. So, the last theologian? theologians, scholastic, the the intellectual theologians who came out of the universities in especially the 11, 12, 1300s, that time period. No, nope. Uh, I don't think Notre Dame really had much of a football team yet at this point. (laughs) All right, so we'll start off by looking at uh, who is probably one of the greatest, most influential theologians in church history, um, and that is Thomas Aquinas. Uh, He lived from AD 1225 to 1274. uh, and he had a very interesting start on his spiritual journey. Um, when he was a young man, he was descended from a noble family, uh, some aristocrats, not cats, different. He decided that he wanted to become a Dominican monk. Um, but his family didn't approve of his decision. They didn't want him to you know, leave the family business behind and go be a monk. So they kidnapped him and imprisoned him in a castle in Rokaseca, where he was held prisoner for over a year. They were hoping he would change his mind. Um, He didn't change his mind. He remained steadfast through that whole year. So they enacted Plan B and hired a beautiful young woman to enter his prison cell and stay there and try to seduce him, thinking that they could draw him away from being a monk through that option. Um, And Thomas still resisted that, held fast to his conviction, uh, and so eventually his family relented um, and allowed him free from the prison, and he was able to go and join the Dominican monks. Um, From there, he went on to study at various universities, and eventually he ended up at the University of Cologne in northwestern Germany. Thomas was his first name, last name Aquinas. Aquinas. Uh, he was a smart man, but for whatever reason, he didn't speak well. He spoke rather slowly, uh, and it made people assume that he was maybe not very intelligent when they first met him and got to know him. Uh, and so in school, because of this, his classmates made fun of him uh, and called him a dumb ox. Um, and one of his instructors defended his his character and said... Um, Uh, This instructor's name was Albertus Magnus, uh, and he responded when he heard of the nickname by saying that this dumb ox will make such a roaring in theology that he will be heard throughout all the earth. Uh, And he was right. Thomas would go on to, to make a very big impact in especially Catholic theology. Um, He didn't gain his reputation as a great theologian during his lifetime. It wasn't until after his death that um, his works were sort of discovered, if you will, by the church um, and raised up to the level that they would be. Um, But during his life, he worked as a lecturer. Um, First, he taught at the University of Paris. uh, And then later, he joined a group of traveling instructors who would go from throughout Western Europe from university to university and teach um, especially in Italy. Uh, his his works that he's famous for, there were two of them. One was a, a sort of instructions for how to present Christianity in a logical format to unbelievers to try to argue the case, call it almost an apologetic. Uh, and the other was a pretty comprehensive um, systematic theology called Summa Theologiae. Um but he didn't finish that one. Um, Nevertheless, it was still one of his greater contributions. Um, The basis for his summary of theology in this was that he was attempting to find a union between the Catholic doctrine, what the Church taught, and the philosophy of Aristotle. Uh, We've talked about how these scholastic theologians were really into Aristotle's stuff. Um, And so in... In his writings, there are three pretty distinct areas of theology um, that made Thomas famous. Um, and so we're going to look first at those three. Um, and so his first one is that he claimed, um, just like Ansem, you remember Ansem of Canterbury, we talked about him last week. Um, and so Thomas, kind of following in Ansem's footsteps, claimed that God's existence could be proven by reason. Anselm, if you remember, had proven or based his argument on um, it wasn't God's power. What was Ansom's? Anybody remember? This is a pop quiz. What was Ansom's logic? He said there must be a a supreme. Yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, same line of thinking. But Thomas rejected Ansom's argument Thought, no, that doesn't really get us there. Um, but he instead developed his own series of five proofs that, uh, he thought could be generated from the human experience, uh, rather than just from reason or thought, and that those proofs were, could be used to logically, um, present a case for the existence of God. Um, he looked at them as sort of a cause and effect thing. We, we can observe and experience certain effects, that logically the only cause could be God, therefore there must be a God, because he's caused all of these effects. Um, One such example he presented was the physical universe. Um, He argued that the universe isn't essential. There could be nothing. There could be no universe. But... The existence of the universe means that somebody who is essential, some greater being above the universe, beyond the realm of the universe, if you will, must have existed who served as the creator of the universe. So the fact that there's anything means that there was somebody who created it. Sort of what it boils down to. Um, And that was one of his cause and effect examples of proving the existence of God. And he he had four others. Um, that I didn't go into, but <laughs> rock solid, no question yeah. Uh, the second area out of the three areas that we 're looking at, um, that he was particularly influential um, is that he taught that all of our knowledge of God uh, that, that we have and how we describe God can only be by analogy. Um, so what he was saying is that there are no words or ideas that the human mind can comprehend that accurately describe God. We we only sort of have a vague idea of what God is like, and when we describe it, our description fails to fully capture that. Um, so he said, for example, we know that God is powerful, and maybe we think of something powerful like... You know, the ocean is powerful with its waves, or an earthquake is powerful, Um, and so we can understand the concept of power in that regard, but those things aren't at all the fullness of what it means to say that God is powerful. It just doesn't do God's power justice, even to compare him to every possible powerful example we can think of. Uh, And so Thomas said it in this way. He said, God surpasses human understanding and speech. The person who knows God best is he who recognizes that whatever he thinks and says falls short of what God really is. So I don't disagree with Thomas there. We will later. But uh, Thomas's third uh, contribution we're going to look at is the fleshing out pun intended, of the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, And so, again, Thomas, coming from Aristotle's view of the physical reality, um, presented the case that the bread and wine used in communion actually retained their physical properties as bread and as wine, but the inner reality of what they were became the body and blood of Jesus. So we saw it as kind of a twofold identity, if you will, of what these things were. Physically, they stayed bread, they stayed wine, but, but on a deeper level of what they really were, it was different. Um, and this, like I said, came from Aristotle's views of things. Um, on kind of that same note, then Thomas also developed the Catholic understanding that communion, um, when it was observed during Mass, was both a sacrament and a sacrifice. Um, and so the reason that he, he came up with sort of this dual purpose for communion. Um, was because the Catholic laymen. The common you know, Christian that go to Catholic churches in medieval times. Rarely actually took communion. Um, they didn't pass the plate. You didn't come up and take bread and take wine. You just observed the priests taking communion. Um, and so... Um, oftentimes, in fact, the wafer, the, the bread, they called it a wafer, would be placed in a special instrument called a monstrance. I don't know what this thing was. If it was a special plate or bowl. Um, but they would place it in this monstrance and carry it around for people to look at. Like, there you go. See the bread. And it was like, ooh. <clears throat> um, and in fact, there's even a Catholic uh, festival called Corpus Christi. Uh, I think that would be where the city in Texas got its name. Um, but that's Latin. It means the body of Christ. Um, and in this festival they would have a parade through the city streets with the wafer on display and a special golden monstrance. Uh, so it was this more of an observed communion rather than a participatory communion. Um, In fact, so rarely did Catholic laymen actually take communion that at the Fourth Lateran Council, so this was just a a Catholic church council, uh, which took place in A.D. 1215, they actually had to decree that Catholics need to partake of communion at least once a year because people weren't doing it even that often. I mean, they went to regular Mass, but they didn't eat the wafer, didn't drink the wine even once a year. Um, and so, this being the standard practice in medieval Europe, um, if you have then the understanding that, that um, communion is just a sacrament, that by participating in it, that's how you receive God's grace, then what good does it do to be an observer and not participate? Uh, and so, Thomas helped develop this idea that, well, it's also like the sacrificial system in Old Testament Israel. Um, where the people observed the sacrifice being made on their behalf, and that was how God's grace was passed down to them. That was the understanding that Thomas presented here. Um, If you observe a Mass, if you observe the priests doing that, then, then the sacrifice covers you and your sins are covered. I watched the Super Bowl. I haven't seen a paycheck yet for my participation there. But no, actually, I didn't watch. That's why. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, so this idea that, that mass as a sacrifice could apply to people who didn't take it um, eventually grew to the point where you could even offer mass uh, on behalf of the dead to help shorten their time in purgatory, uh, and so we even will see wealthy Catholics um, in their wills will leave instructions and leave a chunk of money behind to pay for priests to continue to offer Mass on their behalf after their death. Yeah. So that service is called a, a Requiem Mass, which means uh, it's for the dead. Uh, it comes from their phrase, uh, I didn't actually write the whole Latin phrase down, but it's rest in peace in Latin. Requiem is the word rest there, so. I think it was requiem and passe or something, but um, so this was part of what Thomas developed then or, or helped explain for the church. Um, so those were his three biggest areas. Um, now we're going to look at a few others in which he was also influential. But um, I don't know why we're distinguishing the other three from these. But more more doctrine by Thomas. Um, The next area is that he helped develop for the church a distinction between greater sins and lesser sins. Uh, And he titled these mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal sins being the the greater, more serious ones, and venial sins being the lesser ones. Um, Throughout its history, the church often wrestled with the question about uh, the magnitude of a sin, whether or not all sin could be forgiven, if there was... Uh, a distinction between different types of sin, um, and and particularly what happened if somebody who had already been saved, already been baptized, committed uh, a pretty serious sin? Could they be forgiven again? Did they need to get baptized again? Questions like that, uh, and so Thomas addressed this topic, and um, he he put the bigger sins he called mortal sins or. In, Sins that couldn't be easily forgiven because they had re-killed your soul. If you were born again as a believer and you sinned, you now died again, spiritually. Did they use the same Bible as we No. Okay. Theirs was in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the people didn't understand. They just had to go by one third. Exactly. Yeah. King James hadn't come to the rescue yet. <laughs> Um, and so the, the mortal sins um, killed the soul. Well, lesser sins, which he called venial sins, um, which means they're pardonable. That's the Latin for that they could be pardoned. Um, and so mortal sins, he categorized those, that would be blasphemy, murder, adultery, um, whereas venial sins were most of the other types of things. Um, in fact, one one funny example, don't laugh at this, that Thomas gave an example of a venial sin is laughing too much. (laughs) Don't, Jackie. (laughs) Okay. Um, But when I say unforgivable for mortal sins, it, it doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven at all, just that you're dead again, and now you basically need to get saved again. So he said that a person who sinned mortally could still be forgiven, but they couldn't really earn that salvation again themselves it wasn't just like accruing a bunch of purgatory time they actually had to have God um, bestow his saving grace on them again after they had done enough penance or paid enough indulgence that that is well they'll pay money for anything is the idea but uh, lesser sins on the other hand could be forgiven Without all of this work behind it, you know, if you just sort of confessed that you laughed too much and prayed for forgiveness on your own at home, that sin was covered. It was just a little sin. Every day. (laughs) Today, if you retweet what the Pope said earlier that day, I think you're covered for the day. Um. Next, Thomas also uh, expanded upon the Catholic understanding of what's called the merit that a saint could earn um, or, or purchase in the case of indulgences, or earn through your actions, purchase through indulgences. And this merit um, contributed towards not so much salvation, but shortening their time in purgatory, shortening their punishment. You know, he said that when a person sinned, they accrued what was called temporal punishment, which means a uh, punishment with a time limit fixed on it, not eternal in hell, just you've got some dues to pay. Um, and you could... Thomas. Oh, no. <laughs> the Pope. The Pope told God about it. They talk regularly. <laughs> yes. Um, and so when you accrued... Temporal punishment, you could reduce your, uh, your sentence through penance, through indulgences, and ultimately if you still had some debt remaining when you died, it meant time in purgatory. Um, and so penance and indulgences were the way that you accrued merit um, to counteract the punishment that you were accruing. Uh, incidentally, the Pope had the authority to release a person from purgatory at any time, by crediting merit to that person from the church's treasury of merit, uh, which is a concept that was developed um, by the theologian and professor named Alexander of Hales, who lived from 1170 to 1245, so he was just before Thomas, and he came up with this idea that um, when saints... Died who had accrued so much merit that they didn't have to do any time in purgatory, their excess merit got credited to the church as a whole to be spent at the discretion of the Pope. So the Pope could use your extra good deeds to get the next person a shorter time in purgatory. This is so biblical. It is, I know. I don't understand why the Protestants left this. We're all going to have a lot of purgatory time to do. Ah, so that was what Thomas expanded on that Alexander had initially got the idea going on. Um, and so I think, you know, you're, you're thinking back to my intro here going, I thought you said this guy was one of the greatest theologians in church history. Like, ah, we don't really agree with much of what I just talked about. Um, and you're correct. As Protestants, we really don't. And and this is the guy that is particularly influential in, in getting Catholic doctrine towards the point where the Reformation is going to happen. Where we're going to say, nah, guys, this is wrong. you got a lot of this wrong. Um, Not saying everything he did was bad. I mean, some of the stuff I talked about, we agreed with. um, And his contributions were were pretty big in that regard. Um, But overall, I I think the Protestant uh, view of Thomas is that he was a heretic. um, And we we don't necessarily expect to see him in heaven um, but he remains still one of the greatest of the the intellectual theologians, the scholastics um, and he contributed a lot towards the history of the church just because of how the Catholic Church developed use the idea, at least until we get the That's true. <laughs> So anything extra from your paychecks, Gary, can go to this church treasury. Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> okay, I'll I'll tell tell Chris to go easy on you for a few weeks. <laughs> How long? Well, he said just till the roof is replaced. Yeah, that's true. Or he commits a mortal sin. Well, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, So that wraps up looking at Thomas. Um, um, We'll talk about a few more of these uh, scholastic theologians. I won't go in nearly as much detail as we did with Thomas, but there are still others who made contributions worth mentioning. Um, The next one is Robert Grosseteste. I have no idea if I said that right, especially because he was English, and that doesn't look English to me. Um, He lived from 1168 to 1253, and he was committed to trying to reform the priesthood of the church. Uh, he believed that the role of the priest wasn't just to give the Mass, but that you also should be able, as a priest, to preach the Bible. Um, not just reading the liturgy, but but actually, like, uh, he was trying to make some changes happen. Um, and so to accomplish these goals, uh, Robert preached his sermons in English instead of Latin, uh, so, that the common layman attending the church services could actually understand and know the Word of God. Um, and so, Robert was, in many ways, a very early forerunner of the English Reformation. Uh, next, we have a man who goes by the name Bonaventura. He was from Italy. Uh, his real name was Giovanni di Fidanza. Is that your, your real name, Gio? Giovanni di Fidanza? Could be. Can we just start calling you Bonaventura from now? That's kind of fun to say. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Bonaventura lived from 1221 to 1274. uh, And he was particularly noteworthy as a theologian in this time for being uh, what I might call countercultural. So while most of these theologians were focusing especially on the intellectual and on reason and on just the mind and getting... uh, getting Aristotle's stuff to mesh with doctrine, uh, Bonaventura was focused on experiencing God uh, in your soul, loving God with your heart rather than just knowing God, maybe even abstractly with your mind. Um, and so he was popular for these teachings. In some ways he was considered a, a mystic among the theologians. Um, and he, he helped keep the church from going full intellect on god and hold on we can also know god personally and love god all right uh, next we have john Duns Scotus. he was a scotsman who lived from 1265 to 1308 uh, he became a franciscan monk uh, and then from there went on to become a lecturer in the universities of cambridge oxford and paris and unlike Thomas Aquinas, who uh, we saw was trying to mesh biblical theology with, well, maybe not biblical, but church doctrine with the philosophy of Aristotle, uh, John sought to separate the two. His efforts changed the course a bit for the scholastic theologians, and he, he was able to somewhat steer them away from their, their purely logical and philosophical perspectives of theology. Uh, one example how he did this is that uh, the idea of using reason to prove the existence of God, which we've seen a few of them try to do, John argued that reason could not prove the existence of a divine, uh, sorry, that reason could only prove the divi- the existence of a divine supreme being, but it, it failed, at, together with general revelation, to specifically guide you to the Christian God, to Jesus. It only proved, okay, there must be some, There must be a God, there must be a creator, but he was saying, no, that's not good enough. We need to know God. And he said, God could only be known through special revelation, which comes through the person of Jesus and through the scripture. Uh, Another argument that John made against the focus on reason uh, was that he said God's most important attribute was not God's understanding, but was God's will. Um, And so at this time, there were some arguing, for example, that the laws of physics governed how God made the universe. Because God understood physics, understood how things worked, and that's how he created. And John said, no, it's the other way around. God made the universe, and God decided what the laws of physics were going to be according to what he willed for them to be. Uh, He also applied this same logic to the doctrine of the atonement and claimed that Christ's sacrifice had no inherent value to forgive sin, but uh, it was considered acceptable for the forgiveness of sin because God willed for it to be that way. That part I don't think I agree with John on. Um, But his focus on the sovereignty of God and on God's will over just the logical reason for the existence of God did help to uh, again, steer the scholastic theologians away from their, their philosophical pursuits and back a little more towards the Bible. Uh, John also frequently argued with Thomas Aquinas' doctrines, uh, especially, uh, and again, not one the Protestants care much about, but on the concept of the Immaculate Conception, uh, which says that the Virgin Mary was miraculously conceived without inheriting Adam's original sin. Um, they thought, well, if Jesus is sinless and came from Mary, then Mary probably needed to be sinless too. And I don't know why it stopped at Mary, but they said she was without that that original sin. So far we've been seeing, well, okay, kind of agreeing with some of John's things, but actually it was uh, it was Thomas... Aquinas, who argued against the concept of the Immaculate Conception, and John was the one who was in favor of the idea. Um, Although his last known writings on the topic um, did say that it's not a certainty that Mary was conceived without original sin, only that it was probable that that was the case. Um, Because he was a Franciscan monk, and Thomas Aquinas had been a Dominican monk, uh, those two orders adopted those views. The Franciscans tend to hold to the Immaculate Conception, while the Dominicans tend to reject it. Um, there were even various orders of nuns that got involved in this debate at the time, um, and, and certain higher-ranking special women in these convents had, had special visions, revelations from God. One lady you know, had a revelation that God spoke to her in a dream, and the Immaculate Conception was definitely true. And then another woman in another convent had a vision from God special where God said, no, the Immaculate Conception is a false idea. He does. I, I wish God would make up his mind before giving these women their special revelations, because it's very confusing. Or not. Not. Uh, Final note about John, his writings were uh, oftentimes considered so complex and complicated uh, and hard to understand that later on the Renaissance scholars uh, ended up using his name as an insult for anybody whose work was considered too complicated to understand. Uh, And so we don't use that insult too much these days, but that's where we get the name Dunce. Calling somebody a Dunce is referring to John Dunce Scotus. I thought about bringing a nice pointy hat to put on somebody, but I didn't. <laughs> All right, and the last one we're going to talk about is uh, William of Ockham. Uh, he lived from 1285 to 1349, so he's, timeline-wise, he's the last one there as well. Um, two points I want to make about William. Uh, first, he fell out of favor with the Pope at the time. It was, was Pope John Twenty Second. Um, because his views were, and along with other Franciscan monks, because he was one of them, he believed that the Franciscan monks should embrace absolute poverty, uh, which was what Francis of Assisi had taught way back when he founded this order. But apparently they'd gotten away from that, and so he was saying, no, we need to get back to that. But if you're embracing absolute poverty, you're probably not bringing in a whole lot of money for the church. So the Pope didn't like that idea. Um, and summoned John to call him to account for these ideas, was prepared to call him a heretic. Um, Sorry I said John. The Pope was John. Summoned William, um, and and William responded by fleeing to Germany uh, because the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany at the time wasn't on good terms with the Pope and was more than happy to offer William some sanctuary there. Um, And so as a result of that, the Pope condemned him as a heretic and excommunicated him. Um, And so he responded to that by then doing a lot of anti-Pope writing, uh, in which he said that the Pope isn't infallible. And furthermore, the Pope has no authority over kings and emperors. He may have been sucking up to his uh, emperor buddy there by saying that. But uh, he called some of those ideas into question. Uh, and then the second thing that William did, uh, not such a good thing, is that he repopularized uh, a version of semi Pelagianism. This was something the early church had dealt with. Uh, it was the idea that people could, in some way, contribute towards earning their salvation. Um, not so much that they earned it, but that. It's the idea that, you know, God looks down the corridors of time and sees who's going to be a good person and who's going to be a bad person. And then he elects the good people to save. And so this is, uh, William brought back that idea, bless you, that that there were good people and God saved them because they were good. Not because God saved them while they were sinners. Uh, Unfortunately, this idea actually gained a lot of traction within the church, especially in the scholastic movement. Uh, uh, There were a lot of good people that, not good people, we just said there weren't any of those, but there were a lot of people who did a good job of arguing against this doctrine, uh, but nevertheless it did uh, get accepted by the church. um, Not formally, actually, for quite a while later, it wasn't, I think, until the 1800s that the church formally accepted this, but they did certainly come to teach it and hold it during the medieval period. Um, and this is one of the main beliefs that the reformers had a problem with. Um, that's going to kick things off in just a couple hundred more years here. This is all Western Catholic Church. Yeah, the, the Protestants don't and the Eastern Orthodox don't, uh, don't hold to that semi-Pelagian idea. Um, and so that wraps up our study of these scholastic theologians um, they really focused, again, on Aristotle's philosophy and on using logic and reason to explain God and to know God, or even try to defend Christianity through apologetics in that way. Um, some stuff that, yeah, we agree with, we value, we, we gained a lot of our understanding through their works, but also we see a lot of ways that the Western Catholic Church is straying from Scripture um, and the reason it's important that we're looking at this now is because we're getting close to the Reformation. And this is setting us up for the realization that the church has left the scriptures. Uh, so next week we're going to go and look at uh, one of the most influential popes in church history who lived in this time period. His name is Pope Innocent III. Innocent. 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 Yes. Yes. I mean, of course he's innocent. He's a pope. He's infallible. (laughs) Um, And then after that, I think we're just a few lessons away from wrapping up the Middle Ages and um, turning to look at the Reformation. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, another day studying together uh, your history, how you have preserved the church, how your scripture holds true throughout uh, all the ages, and uh, we just thank you for the faithful men that you've placed in all of the dark times god that uh, that you carry on the torch that the the gospel continues uh, and is pure that we know we know you god not just because we've reasoned it but because you've revealed yourself to us through jesus christ your son and through your word that you've given us and so I ask that we would that we would come to know you and love you more through those means that as we focus on Jesus, that as we read your word, that uh, that we would see our sin in a greater way and see you, God, for your holiness and your love towards us even greater. Ask that you would be exalted by our service today, that uh, our music to you would lift your name, that uh, you speak through Bob uh, again as we, as we look at your word, God. That, uh, ask all this in your son's name. Amen.